Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, just an amazing guest. I am interviewing Chris Tritico. Um... Chris just has a, a very interesting story to tell, one that very few people have has uh, has experienced. Chris is a, an attorney. He's been a, a practicing attorney for, for decades. Uh, but what we're going to talk about is a case that he um, was a part of back in the 90s. And it's a case that uh, really kind of gripped the, the country and, and really the world. Um, we're going to talk about the Oklahoma City bombing. And um, he's going to kind of go into that if you if you don't know much about it. But uh, it was a case where uh, Timothy McVeigh bombed a, a federal building in Oklahoma City, and a lot of lives were were lost. And um, there's a tragic tragic incident. Um, but uh, Chris was actually part of the defense of Timothy McVeigh, and I know you know a lot of people thinking, oh man. How how could you defend somebody who's did, done something so so heinous, so crazy? Um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Chris's you know life um, and what led him up to that point. We're going to talk about Timothy McVeigh's life and what led him to a, a very different point, uh, doing something that was not uh, at all excusable. Um, but uh, it, it was a it was an, a powerful interview. This interview is going to be two parts because um, you know there's no way I can cut cut it down into trying to get it into the hour that uh, I like to to keep these. And uh, he's just got some powerful powerful things to say. Um, there's very few people who's really kind of been on that side of things where you know somebody's so uh, I guess notorious um, to have have defended them. And to have uh, kind of have seen the other side of things, you know, the, the the story with this really is, you know, Timothy McVeigh could have picked a very different path. He was on a very different path at one point in the army and and doing some amazing things, and then things went uh, south. Um, it it really personifies uh, somebody who did something very very um, bad, and uh, it just shows that. Uh, if you just if you it just takes a few wrong instances, a few wrong decisions, and people go on on very different paths. Um, I, I think you're gonna really get a lot out of why Chris thinks it's so important to defend um, people that may have done something extremely, extremely heinous, and you know defending the indefensible, so to speak, because uh, this is an important part of our constitution. And Chris is going to talk about that. And uh, I think uh, you can gain a lot from that. So this part of the interview, we're going to talk about Chris growing up, what got him into the legal profession, how he wanted to do it since he was seven years old. Uh, We're going to talk about kind of a little bit of his early legal career. Uh, We're going to talk about where he was when he heard about the Oklahoma City bombing, how Timothy McVeigh was was, uh, caught, uh, how he got involved in the case himself, um, kind of leaving his family and going and moving to to try this case, what their expectation was with the case, meeting Timothy McVeigh for the first time, uh, just a, a lot of really, really powerful things. Um, we're going to end it with a, a very interesting thing he says, uh, and then we'll pick up the second part next week um, where we talk about you know the final verdict, and um, we're going to talk about kind of the appeal process, the eventual um, execution of Timothy McVeigh, and all of that. But I really think you're going to gain a lot of insight of something that you know we all saw on the news, we all saw on CNN back in 1995. If you were old enough, most of us kind of know where we were uh, at that time. Uh, but very few people have heard the, the story of one of the men who defended Timothy McVeigh. So I think you're really going to get a lot from this. Uh, Without further ado, here is Chris Tritico. I'm here with Tris Tritico. How are you, Chris? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me. So 
obviously we're, I mean, we're here, we're going to talk about a, a very, uh, I guess, big case that you, that you took part in and we'll talk about how you were involved. But before that, um, you're an attorney. I know that you started kind of that passion as a, as a kid. I, I think I, I saw you in an interview say that you knew that you wanted to be attorney at seven years old. You weren't exactly sure why that was the case, but you knew you wanted to do that. So just kind of introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, maybe your entire career in the legal profession from uh, that seven-year-old kid to, to where we are right now. Well, yeah, sure. And, and thanks for asking me that. Um, I, I grew up here in Houston, Texas, where I've lived my entire life. Um, my dad grew up with uh, one of the most famous criminal defense attorneys in the, in the country, uh, Richard Racehorse Haynes. He and, he and Richard grew up in the Heights, where, where my office is today, actually. And they, uh, they were very, very close friends uh, all through grade school, uh, middle school and high school and college and remained friends until the day uh, Richard passed. And uh, when I was a senior in high school, um, Richard ran into my dad at a Reagan a high school reunion and he told him I wanted to be a lawyer. And he said, send him by, I'll give him a job. And that began my career in the law two days after I got out of high school. But, but moving back, when I was seven years old, my mom and dad sitting around the dinner table, we ate dinner together every night. Uh, there was um, five of us at the time, my, my two brothers, my mom and dad, and later my sister. We were sitting around the dinner table and they were asking all of us, what we were going to be when we grew up. And I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I never, ever looked back from that. From that one day, I never, ever changed my mind. And I was laser focused on becoming a lawyer from the age of seven. Uh, I, people ask me all the time, how did you know that you wanted to be a lawyer when you were seven? And I, I don't know uh, what it was, but it was just something that I was drawn to um, at that tender age for some reason. And I worked toward it my entire life. Um, and so when my dad told me that he knew Racehorse Haynes, um, it was uh, amazing. I didn't, I had no idea he even knew the man. And so when he told me to call them up, I was going to have a job there. It was one of the most exciting days I've, I've ever had. And to start at that firm at that time in, in that firm's career, it just finished the Cullen Davis, I mean, the, the, uh, the blood and money trial, Dr. John Hill, which was one of the most famous trials in the country at the time. And we had the most famous people in the country coming through there. And then when I started, they were, work, they were in trial on the last Cullen Davis trial, which was, uh, you'll remember the book or in the movie, Blood and Money. And Cullen Davis was a billionaire who was charged with murdering his wife's uh, boyfriend and uh, his uh, injury, I think killing his wife's daughter and injuring somebody else. Fascinating case. And then in a separate trial, uh, solicitation of capital murder of a judge. And Haynes ended up winning all of those cases. And just fascinating work uh, to work at a, at a place like that with the best lawyer you would ever meet. Uh, and, and so it set me up at the age of 18 with the best lawyers in the country, learning the best law in the country. And then I stayed there through uh, college, law school. And I later learned this, uh, Naomi, his, his wife, somebody asked right about the time I was graduating from law school, are y'all going to hire Chris? And Naomi said, we've had him so long, we can't get rid of him now. <laughs> and I think that Naomi may have been a big factor in me, in me getting that job, but, mm. but it was the greatest experience I've ever had. Um, and Richard was a, a dear friend. Naomi was a, was a wonderful friend. Uh, a quick story, when, when I was there just a few days, Richard called me into his office and, and said, um, I need you to go. We just bought a house on Kirby Drive. That's in the, the River Oaks, one of the biggest, uh, most expensive subdivisions in Houston. We just bought this house in River Oaks. Meet Naomi over there and uh, drive her around. She wants to look at some things for the house. And I said, yes, sir. And I got, went down and got my car. And I'm thinking, I don't want to drive some old lady around. I came here to learn the law. And I was livid. 
and I'd never met Naomi at the time. And um, so I go over there and pick her up and she turns out to be the, this lovely lady um, who we went around all day long. We stayed, spent all day together and, and we talked and, and we formed a, a 40 year friendship um, mm-hmm. from that day. And um, uh, I, I, she was a, just a great, wonderful lady. Uh, it was a, it was a wonderful career working for Richard. I was there from 1979 to 1993 when I left to start my own practice. Yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, most of you, I, I'm in Indiana, but a lot of you Southern people definitely maybe in the legal profession, you all have to have these nicknames racehorse. That's, that's quite the name for sure. I like that, but yeah, so let's kind of get into, I guess, you know, the, what we're here to we'll talk about. Um, I never really like to, and I, I mentioned this to you, you know, when we talked before, I don't like to kind of set the scene and, and put my bias in things just because obviously it's an interview about you. Uh, so before we can really get to how you are involved in, in such a big case, if you would kind of in your own words, explain what happened on uh, April 19th, 1995. So uh, April 19th, 1995, of course, was the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, we now know that uh, Timothy McVeigh, uh, with the assistance of Terry Nichols, um, blew up the Murrah building, killed 168 um, slash 100, killed, excuse me, 168 slash 169 people and injured, as I recall, I think 2,500 people um, at that at that site. It was horrific, um, a horrific bombing. It was uh, just 10, 12 feet from severing the building in half um, and would have killed everybody else in the building that had, had it had it completely severed the building. It was at the time, uh, and may still be, I don't know if there's been anything else, but at the time, the the most, well, no, I'm sorry, 9-11, um, the, the, the biggest terrorist bombing in the nation. And the nation was on full alert that day. Uh, when it happened, it was, it was horrific. Absolutely. Yeah. And where, so where were you when I guess you, you learned about this, obviously 1995 was a little bit before maybe I have the conscious memories, 9-11, you mentioned that I remember exactly where I was. And I know a lot of people remember, you know, when they learned about this, obviously later on, you became a lot more involved. So I think it'd be interesting just to know where were you when you first heard about the, the bombing? I, I believe that uh, I was in court already that day, um, if my memory serves correctly, um, when the news came down to Houston that I was already in court. And I, um, I called my mom. Uh, my aunt at the time uh, lived in Oklahoma City. And so I called my mom to make sure that she had talked to my aunt, see if she was okay. And um, being in Houston, uh, court didn't stop. And so we, um, you know, we went back to work and it wasn't until I got back to the office that I was able to figure out what really was going on. And at that point, it was just, you know, news going on. They hadn't uh, made any arrests yet. And there were just constant news feed about what was happening at the, at the moment. Yeah. How, and this is just something that I'm, I'm sure I could have found, but how quickly did they, they make an arrest? I know they kind of pulled him over for something that was totally unrelated. But was that the same day? He was arrested that day for, he was stopped for a uh, license plate issue. And while the officer was uh, questioning him about the license plate issue, he saw a gun and he arrested him for uh, possession of an illegal weapon and had no idea that there was anything um, related to the Oklahoma City bombing with respect to this and took him to the Noble County Jail for booking. He was there. 24 hours, uh, the judge had set bail and Tim knew, um, that, you know, he need, if he didn't get bail pretty quick, he was going to be, they were going to figure it out. And he kept waiting for the bail to come through. And, um, and the judge, I believe had signed the bail, but it hadn't been entered in the, in the records yet. And so the FBI showed up, I believe, before I know, I know before the bail uh, order was entered, and 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 grabbed him. Yeah, and you know they they took him out of out of that uh, that jail, and there's a, a pretty famous picture based on that, which I'm, we're going to get back to because I think that was important to to him kind of later on, and maybe the appeals when he was wanting to go through that. So 
we'll go back to that picture later. But um, how did you get involved in, uh, you know, in the case from, from what I've read, it wasn't like you were necessarily itching to do it. I think you almost kind of recruited into it. So how did this, how did you get involved? The lead lawyer on the case was Stephen Jones from Enid, Oklahoma. And in uh, early 1997, he decided he needed another litigator on the case. And he called Racehorse Hanks and said, I need another litigator. Would you recommend someone to me? And he said, yeah, give me, give me a day. And so he called me in my office. We were still officing in the same building. I just had my own firm. And he um, called me and asked me to come up to his office. Now, typically that meant he wanted me to do something for free. And so I was headed up to his office to see what he wanted. And I walked in and he said, do you want to be famous? And I said, well, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. Now I'd already had several cases in the news and, and, you know, had several high profile cases. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said, well, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. He said, well, I got a call from Stephen Jones. Uh, he's Tim McVeigh's lead lawyer and he's looking for a, another litigator. And I'm going to recommend you. Do you want it? I said, yeah, call him. I'll take it. He said, wait a minute. Uh, why don't you call Debbie? Why don't you wait, go home tonight and talk to Debbie about it and make sure she's okay with it. Now you got to understand we had a one-year-old, a, um, a six-year-old and eight-year-old at the time. And um, I said, Debbie, will be fine. You call him and tell him I'll take it. And he said, okay. So I went home and I came in the house and I said, um, honey, I got to tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I told her and she, just like every cockamamie idea I've ever had, she said, yeah, let's go for this. This is, this is a good idea. And so I came back the next day and Stephen Jones called me either that day or the next day. And we talked and, and he said, I'd like to meet with you. And so um, I flew to Denver to meet with him. Now I had just added a new partner to my firm and we were, we had, you know, we were run out of cash. We had spent all our money bringing this partner in and we were struggling to make payroll and do all the things we needed to do. And, and I spent all this money on a, um, on an airline ticket and all this stuff. And I get up there and I, and I go meet with Steven in his, in his hotel room. And we talk from, I don't know, seven o'clock at night till about three 30 in the morning about everything. And he said, well, look, it's, it's late. Let's go on back to your room and let's, let's meet in the morning for breakfast at about nine o'clock. And I said, okay. And I get to the door and he goes, I got to tell you though, Chris, I, I really think that I need to bring in a woman. I said, well, it's your choice. Um, whatever you think you need to do, but I'll see you in the morning. So I close that door and I'm thinking, God damn it. <laughs> Just live it. I spent all this money if he wanted a woman, why'd he call me? Hmm. And um, so I go back to my room and toss and turn till nine o'clock in the morning. I get down to the breakfast room and well, the restaurant and Steven said, how'd you sleep? I said, I didn't, I didn't sleep a wink. He said, why not? Your room bad. I said, no, it's what you said. <laughs> I said, look, if you wanted a, if you want a woman that bad, I'll wear a dress. <laughs> and, and he cracked up he said, all right, you're the guy I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to um, file an order uh, today. When can you be here? I said, well, I, I need two weeks uh, if I can have it, because I, at the time I represented one teacher's union, uh, the Houston Federation of Teachers, 5,000 members. And I was the general counsel for them. I now represent seven teachers unions, 11,000 teachers. And um, I said, I got to wrap a whole, bo a whole lot of stuff up. Uh, so if you can give me two weeks, uh, that'd be great. And he goes, yeah, that's fine. This was six weeks before trial. Mm. And I, so I flew back to Houston and I am scrambling to let my clients know that I'm leaving. And my union president was livid. Uh, this, was, this was the middle of what we call teacher termination season school districts in Texas have to fire teachers in the spring and I'm leaving. <laughs> and so she was livid. And, um, and Stephen calls me two days after I got back, he said, you have to be here in two days. I said, all right. He said, there's a motion on Friday. I need you here in two days. Uh, Cause I want you to argue it. I said, Oh, okay. I know nothing about this case. Nothing. I've read anything. I know nothing. 
I said, all right, I'll be there. I go home. I pack my car uh, with everything I can think of. Uh, my, my little pickup truck I had at the time with everything I can think of, all of my clothes. And I leave, kiss my kids and my wife and I'm gone. Um, and I arrived there. I drove, you know, all night long and I get there and I'm there. And the first day I got there, I got a stomach virus and I had to go to the doctor and they stuck an IV in my arm and wouldn't let me leave for uh, 15 hours. <laughs> and Steve is up there going, who did I hire? <laughs> Seriously, that's funny. Yeah. So, I, I mean, there's something that you've, you've made me think of that I, I didn't even I hadn't even really thought of is you talked about you had represented a teacher's union. I'm sure you, you have a lot of clients that, you know, have you on retainer or anything like that. Is it ever something with these cases that you have to, I mean, I wouldn't say run it by them, but do you ever worry that, Hey, you know, I represent these people and now they're going to see you representing this case and maybe they're not going to want to, you know, be, be in, in the same, uh, I guess, sentence with, with this or no, um, First, my contract says that they understand that I take uh, representation of the criminally accused. And my, um, my contract with the teachers union says that I do their teacher terminations and I represent their members when they're criminally accused. And uh, I would think that, that, um, that they would be very proud of, of a lawyer who's willing to do what I did. Um, there's you know, been a few times in my career that someone has said, you know, when they say, what's your most famous case? And I say the Oklahoma City bombing. And they say, well, he got executed. And I just look at him with a little bit of disgust and say, well, you know, that was the hardest case in America. Uh, your case is not that way. And if somebody doesn't want to hire me because we didn't win the Oklahoma City bombing, then you can get out. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, um, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I understand that for sure. And I want to kind of get into to a little bit of that later and, and why it is so important to, to represent everyone. Uh, but let's talk about you, I guess your first, first meeting with, with Timothy McVeigh. Um, again, before I, I started researching to, to interview you, I think I'd mostly seen pictures, read things. I never really watched an interview with him before. Um, now that I have, I mean, he came across as a very calm, smart, intelligent guy. Um, not somebody that you would necessarily would have thought this would have been something that he was capable of. Um, what was, what was your first, first, uh, experience with him? And then also, I mean, I'm sure you didn't know what you were getting into either. So walking into that room and, and realizing you're going to sit down with somebody who did do something so heinous, what, what was that like? So I had absolutely no idea what I was going to get into. I, um, this was my first capital murder case. Um, I had never met anyone. I'd met people accused of capital murder before. That's not true because we had represented them at Haynes and Fullerwater, but I'd never met anyone with at this level before. And the government had done a very, very good job of demonizing uh, Tim McVeigh. And so I, um, I didn't know what I was getting into. I, um, I expected uh, quite frankly, the first time I went in there to meet a monster, uh, because that's what the government told me I was, I was going to meet. And, uh, it was not that way at all. Tim is a, was a very laid back, uh, uh, nice, friendly, and funny man. And he was also one of the smartest men I have ever met. Um, we had a hundred thousand pages of FBI 302s. Uh, 302 is the witness statement. Whenever the FBI interviews a witness, they have to document it in writing. And that's called a 302. Those came down to three to 100,000 pages. Tim read every one of them. Mm. And I could go to him and say, I'm working on X. And he'd go, uh, there's a 302 on that. It was written by Agent uh, Smith, and it's around May the 15th. And he was always right around there. I mean, he was he was brilliant. Um, it's a shame that he got tied up with Terry Nichols and into this plot uh, like he did, because he could have done really, really good things with his life. Yeah. And that's that's the case. Uh, a lot of times with a lot of different people, it's just take you take one really wrong wrong path. And it, it makes you a totally different person. I just a, a brief story. I interviewed uh, the 
Lee Detector, the person who caught the Green River Killer, he went on to become a congressman. He talked about how him and the Green River Killer actually grew up about two miles apart. They both came from broken homes. They both, you know, were kind of in trouble as, as kids, but he decided to kind of turn things around and, and not go down that path. He became the one that caught, you know, the other person two miles down the road. So it really, yeah. really, it just, it, it, it really, uh, there's so much potential and a lot of, I mean, I, I, I just talked to somebody with my, my day job that, you know, in the, the jail and, uh, you know, the, the, the person who I was speaking with said, you know, there's so many people in here. I, we can't, we can't believe how much they are able to, you know, basically tear things up just because they, they are so smart that if they were to use some of this for good, we they could probably rule the world at this point. So, right. Yeah. I so, yeah, I, 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 and I think that's kind of a, a big thing too. And you talked about how, uh, if you would have just taken a different path, things could have been different. Talk about, you know, the, the path that he did take and how he was kind of radicalized. Well, so when he um, joined the army, he, um, he got put in a, in his platoon with Terry Nichols. That's where they met. Mm-hmm. Terry Nichols was already uh, in the militia movement when he joined the army. He had already renounced his U.S. government citizenship when he swore an oath to protect the United States Constitution. And so he never should have been allowed in the, in the army. But that's what happened. Um, the that is when his indoctrination, if you will, into the militia movement began was at the beginning of his his stint in the army. But Tim was an outstanding soldier. He was uh, promoted uh, extremely fast. He was he made sergeant very quickly and um, was the first person authorized to shoot in the Gulf War and made uh, General Schwarzkopf's um, security team. There is a picture of him with General Schwarzkopf at the peace signing, the peace treaty signing in Iraq. He was he was advancing in in the army. He made one mistake, and he admitted this: that he had applied before the war started. He had applied for special forces, and right towards the end of the war, his orders came through for to go to special forces training, and. He told me he could have turned that down, uh, but he went anyway, and that he was out of shape, and he washed out in three days. And I, I said, "How'd you? How were you out of shape? You just fought a war." And he said, "Well, you don't understand war. Uh, most of the time, you're sitting around doing nothing, and you go out for an hour, hour and a half, fire some bullets, you come back, and you lay around." I said, "You're right. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand war." Um, and so he said that. When he washed out of spe- special forces, the uh, that ends your career in the military. You will never advance again. And so he had to leave the military and he left. That started his time in drifting around the country and going to gun shows and selling trinkets. And he was he was really doing nothing. He was making very little money and he was just getting nothing accomplished and he was making no money. And but he ended up at the uh, Branch Davidian compound the day that the raid happened and they burned the building down. And he told me I was there. I saw the government shoot incendiary devices into that building and they burned it down. And that's what incensed him. And that's what started the whole thing. Yeah. And I, I had watched an interview with him that he, he mentioned the, the Branch Davidians. The thing that I guess I just don't, I don't understand. And there's obviously there's a ton of things that most people aren't going to understand about this case and, and why he did what he did. But, you know, that was kind of what set him off. That's what made him decide that to go down this path, the, you know, the, the raid that happened. But I guess I don't see the correlation. I'm sure very few people no. can. But what was the correlation between seeing, you know, bloodshed and seeing people lose their life there There's, in order to think, hey, there should be more lives being lost. There is no justification. I didn't offer that as a justification. Uh, that's that's right. what did it. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you uh, what caused it in Tim's mind to be a justification, uh, but that's what it was. 
Yeah. And no. I, I don't, I don't justify it at all. There, there was no justification for the Oklahoma city bombing. Right. No, absolutely. For sure. And we didn't, we didn't offer one at trial. Right. I had, ju- I had just wondered whether he had given you some kind of, you know, elaborate justification of why that was the case, but it's more just that, you know, this is what, what happened. And this is why I did what I did. It wasn't necessarily some big justified thing in, in his mind, I guess. Right. Yeah. Well, so, and, and look, there's, there's some things I still can't talk about. All right. Yeah. The Supreme court has ruled that, that the attorney client privilege exceeds the life of the defendant mm-hmm. unless the defendant specifically waives it before the, before his death. And so, Tim read that case and specifically did not waive it. And so uh, the things I'm talking about, what he said to me are things that are in the public record already, uh, but things that he's, that are not in the public record that he may have said to me, I, I just can't talk about. Oh, absolutely. Definitely respect that for sure. Um, let, let's kind of talk about the goal of the defense. You know, obviously, it, was, it, it wasn't a case that you were necessarily trying to get somebody to walk out the front doors with you. I think you, you mentioned that in a, an interview that if, if we really had, had helped him walk out the front doors, then I wasn't going to be going out the front doors with him. So um, what, was, I mean, what was the goal of the defense? And if you could kind of tie that in to, I, I never like to just assume people know very much, definitely when it comes to the law, um, what is a, a capital murder? And I think that kind of goes into your, your guys' goal. So a capital murder, it depends on what jurisdiction you're in as to what the definition is. And the federal system, it's different than each state. But in this instance, it was uh, using a weapon of mass destruction and um, in uh, killing a uh, federal officer. And then there were some others. I can't, I'm sorry, it's been over 25 years, but there were oh, some absolutely. others. But those are the, the, the two that I can primarily remember. Um, a capital murder means that your act is so heinous that uh, if the government proves that, and in the federal system, if they prove aggravating circumstances that outweigh the mitigating circumstances introduced by the defense, then if the jury answers the special questions in, a, in the right way, then the defendant gets the death penalty. That's a very technical answer, but that's mm-hmm. the way it works. Mm-hmm. They don't just go in the back and say, we vote for death. The reason that it's set up that way is there are scant few people that would go back there and just say, kill him. Yeah. So what was, the, what was your guys' goal? I believe it was not, you know, necessarily to get some, get him off, but it was to, I guess, make sure that, that the death penalty wasn't, wasn't the option that was chose. Correct. Well, well so let me, let me explain it this way. Sure. The constitution requires that every defendant receive a fair trial mm-hmm. and that he receive a vigorous defense. And there were five of us who were willing to take on this case and and ensure that Tim McVeigh's constitutional rights were protected. We did not have any illusion as to what was going to happen in this case, nor did Tim. He knew he was going to lose and he knew he was going to get the death penalty. Hmm. That did not mean that we were not going to try our very best to win that case and protect his rights along the way. But we did understand what was going to happen. The, the deck was stacked against us from day one. When Bill Clinton called a press conference and said, we're going to kill this guy, that was the end of that case. And, and we knew it, and Tim knew it. But I don't take any case with the idea that I'm not going to give my client everything I have. And the day that I say I'm not going to give you everything I have, I have to quit. I have to get out. And so all of us did everything we could. I I worked uh, 18, 19 hours a day, six days a week. On Sundays, I slept into about 9, That was my sleep day. I got a little bit of extra sleep. I lost 40 pounds trying that case. Now, don't worry, I found it. But we worked our butts off uh, doing everything in our power to ensure that Tim had the best defense he could get. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I want to get kind of back to the case, but what are, people who are listening now and thinking, you know, how can you represent somebody who's, who's done these things? How, how could you have been so eager to, to, to get involved in this? 
explain kind of why that's so important to, to have representation for, for everyone in our, our system? That's such a great question. If the Constitution doesn't work for the Tim McVeighs uh, of our country, it won't work for anyone. And the day that we're willing to say, we don't like you, we don't like what you did. And because of that, we're not going to give you the full protection of our Constitution. We're going to give you less. That slippery slope is then open to start ticking away at at the Constitution for, well, then this person doesn't get it and this person doesn't get it. And the next thing you know, all of our fundamental rights have ticked away to the point where we're not protecting anyone. So it is so vitally important that people like me and my co-counsel stand up for people like Tim McVeigh, regardless of how bad the public feels about them and protects their rights all the way through the system. If he gets convicted and gets the death penalty, the system worked. If he wins and walks out the front door, and as I said, if that happened, it wouldn't be with me. But if he wins, he gets to go home. That's how our Constitution is designed. And that's the way it works. And that's the way it has to work. Or it doesn't work for our brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts who are getting DWIs. It's yeah. the same Constitution. Yeah, no, they think that's... That's very well said for, for sure. Um, how, I, I, again, I've seen you in different interviews talking about, you know, difficult clients. Obviously, this was an extremely difficult case. How receptive was he to, you know, the defense and, and what they wanted to lay out? Was he a, a client that was kind of easy to deal with or, or not? Because I could see it going both ways if he knew the you know, all hundred thousand pages. Sometimes that means he has his own, uh, own ideals about every, every page. Well, it, that was a hundred thousand pages of interviews. There was, uh, over a hundred hours of videos, 5,000 pages of lab notes, which was what mm-hmm. I was in charge of, um, multiple of, of the rest of it. I don't remember now, but, uh, Tim and I got along very well. There was very, very few times that we disagreed on, on, on strategy. Um, there were other lawyers in the case that Tim butted heads with virtually every day. And I'm not going to get into who it was, Um, but those things were worked out. And quite frankly, in a case that size with, with that much pressure, I don't, I don't find that odd. Um, That's, that's what, that's what a case like that is, you know, happens. Um, But here's what the constitution says. The defendant in a criminal case gets to make two decisions on his own. That is whether to pick a jury and go to trial or, or, or accept a plea bargain or whether or not to testify on his own behalf in that jury trial. Um, every other decision in the case, the lawyer gets to make, regardless of what the defendant thinks. And so if Tim had a said, well, he couldn't plead guilty because they were they were choosing death and you can't plead guilty to a death sentence. But um but assuming he could have, if he'd have said, I want to plead guilty, we wouldn't have had any choice. But if he'd have said to us, I want to testify on my own behalf, we'd have written a huge brief about it and made him sign it, uh, telling him how what a bad idea that was. But he'd have been allowed to because the Constitution says it's his right and we can't interrupt that right. But every other decision at the end of the day, whether he likes it or not, is our decision to make because we're the lawyers. And if he doesn't like it, that's just the way it is. And uh, somebody like Tim, who's that brilliant, if you just work with him, and this is a problem that I think a lot of lawyers have, defendants don't want to be talked at. They want to be worked with. They're scared. They, they don't know what's happening with their lives. They have no control over their life anymore. And I've found, and I've tried to make it a central pra- point of my career, is to just spend some time with my clients, try to figure out what's going on with them. And I'm not talking about capital murder now. I'm talking about regular cases and trying to figure out where I can help these people. And you can get so much more done with them if you just spend the extra time instead of just bringing them in, shoving them out and closing the case. And that's, I think, what a lot of lawyers are are doing without spending the time to help people. This is a service business and we're here to help these people. And if we just try to help them, you get such a better result. 
And I, that's what I try to do with Tim. You just work with him, tell him what you're doing, tell him why, and, and, and let him talk about it. And, and it generally worked out. Yeah. So with you personally in the case, just, I guess, describe the, the pressure that, that you had. And then also, obviously you walked in every day, probably not with, you know, a, a bunch of people rooting for, for necessarily your, your side of the, the argument. So what was the pressure like, you know, with, with something so major and then something with everything pretty much stacked against you? I want to kind of hear for, on your side and then also maybe the pressure with, with your family. I don't want to, I don't want to forget about them, you know, a thousand miles away, not seeing, uh, seeing their husband, seeing their father. So, um, I was, um, I was feeling a lot of pressure. I had, I didn't know I was doing forensics till I got there. Um, I had managed to go all the way through high school and college without ever taking a physics class or a chemistry class. Um, I just managed to worm out of all of it. And so I had um, a lot of learning to do in six weeks. And I, I brought the experts in. One of them was from London. Uh, there were two others from here in the United States, and I brought them in. The guy from London was this big, fat guy with a monocle. And he came in and sat down and put that monocle in. And I looked at him. I said, you are not testifying, sir. He said, I say, why not? I said, that's why. (laughs) 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 It's the silliest thing I'd ever seen. And these people are all hired before I got there. So I didn't have, there's nothing I could do about it. But we, I spent days meeting with these people and I had to read um, 5,000 pages of lab notes. I had to learn fingerprints, tire tread marks, how to build a bomb, blow up a bomb, clean up a bomb, um, tool marks, which have now been discredited. Um, I can't remember the other. It was like seven or eight different preps that we had that I had to learn mm. and and get all that ready in six weeks. And it was a ton of work, ton of work. But I, I hit the ground. I, 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 it was interesting. It was, it was a lot of great experience. And in the middle of that, the FBI crime lab um, exploded, not exploded like a bomb, exploded with a scandal. And the judge, we had a big hearing on it. The judge refused to let us use it. And, and, and I, I was stunned that he wouldn't let us get that in. But every witness from the crime lab that came on, I would ask him questions around it. Uh, you know, do you know so-and-so? Where's he? Uh, how come he's not here? <laughs> and, uh, and, um, uh, but but we, you know, we did the best we could with that stuff. Um, I think at the end of the day, we had done a really good job of discrediting a lot of their um, crime lab evidence. And had this not been Tim McVeigh um, and not been 168 slash 169 people, um, it, uh, it might've been a winnable case. Uh, this was so horrific and so tragic. There was just no way to overcome the, the great weight of it. Yeah. Yeah. Speak about, you know, your, your family and their, oh. they're going through the, the case too. I mean, they, they, obviously they weren't necessarily a part of it, but they were, uh, kind of in, in your corner when maybe others weren't. Well, so first, there was never a time in Denver that uh, anybody was ever rude or offensive to us, ever. Um, They were always very professional, very kind. Um, uh, It was the first time in my career and probably the only time in my career that you couldn't go anywhere without a camera stuck in your face. I mean, every time we left the hotel, there were cameras waiting for us and you go to a you go to a restaurant, they follow you, come out, they follow you back. I mean, everywhere you went, cameras there. And so everybody in Denver knew who we were, uh, but they would come up, shake your hand, you know, how you doing, anything we can do for you. Just really, really friendly people. Uh, and I found that very refreshing. Uh, my wife here in Houston never received a uh, negative input from anybody either. We had, we had taken our phone number and made it private and um, switched it over to our answering service just in case. Um, and she went and talked to the school and told them what was going on. And it was odd that uh, her co-Brownie leader uh, was an FBI agent 
she didn't even know that who worked on the case. <laughs> and so um, she was concerned about that. And I said, just don't talk about it. You'll be fine. She's not going to do anything to you. Um, and, um, but she never had any problems. Now the kids, uh, you know, the kids were missing dad and especially my son, he was only one. And one night, uh, they were watching the news and I was on there and my son started crying and he was patting the TV and he was saying daddy. And, and so she called me and I answered the phone and she said, Christopher wants to talk to you. And so I took the phone and he started crying and said, come home. And, and I calmed him as best I could. And I said, let me talk to mom. And I said, don't you ever do that to me again. Hmm. And she said, I didn't know what to do. And I said, well, you're going to have to handle this. I said, I'm up here working my butt into the ground and I can't handle that. I can't, I can't do anything about it. And you can't lay that on me. Hmm. I said, I'm coming home as many weekends as I can, but you cannot lay that burden on me. You're going to have to handle this. And she said, okay, I'll take care of it. And so that was the only time that happened, but it was, it was gut-wrenching. Um, what I did was uh, once the trial started, um, I would fly home every third weekend unless there was something huge happening. And we had government travel and a government car service. Uh, and so I, I could fly home every third weekend like I say, unless there was something really major happening. And so I got to see my family, you know, fairly often during the trial. And, and when I was home, we made a, um, a special, uh, we made extra efforts to not have anybody over. It was just us. And we're just going to spend time with the kids. And, you know, my family would want to come over. And I said, no, uh, I'm, y'all aren't coming over. I don't need to see you. You're, you're adults. I'll see y'all when the trial's over. I'm um, <laughs> yeah. spending time with my kids. Yeah. And, uh, and we would just spend time with the kids. And right before the trial ended, I flew um, Debbie and the kids up to uh, Denver. And I brought, not the kids, but I brought Debbie over to the courtroom and introduced her to Tim. And she shook his hand. And um, she... Um, when, when she, uh, later on, I just had, I had to go to work. So she sat and watched the trial that day. And that night I said, what'd you think? She said, well, he smiled at me. I said, what the hell did you think he was going to do? <laughs> that That's, I, I don't know. I don't, exactly. That, that may be the one thing I don't know exactly how to take that you, yeah. that you introduced, you introduced your wife and, and him. I don't know. That's that maybe th- that throws me for a little bit of a loop. So we're going to leave me kind of in that uh, perpetual loop and get back to this interview next week. Just an amazing guy. Uh, I do think that his answer to you know why he decided to have his wife meet Timothy McVeigh is a is a solid one, and we're going to kind of give him uh, that opportunity next week to to answer that. Um, just we've learned so much already, uh, just about the process and why it is important to to provide defense for, for everyone. You know, if we can't defend, you know, those who have done the, the worst crimes, then uh, it gets harder and harder to defend people who, who deserve a, a, uh, a solid defense. Um, I, I really, really appreciated speaking with Mr. Tritico. I do want to say in the very beginning of this interview, some of the reason Chris Tritico is hard for me to say, I totally introduced him as Trish Tritico, so I apologize for that. I I, uh, I didn't want to kind of mention it in the opening because you're going to be like, man, I, I, I want to know, see who kind of uh, realized that, but it was a, a powerful interview. Uh, the second half is just as powerful. I know that you're going to gain a lot from, from listening to that part too. We're going to talk about the final verdict which was, you know, the death penalty. We're going to talk about the appeals process and how uh, Mr. Tritico was a, a part of that at one point, kind of stepped away and became a part of it again. We're going to talk about kind of the human aspect of just seeing someone be put to uh, put to death that you did start building a relationship with, regardless of, the, you know, the, the heinous acts that uh, Timothy McVeigh uh, did. It is a, a tough thing to see someone that you've... Uh, you know, you've you've grown to uh, to understand a little bit more. Be be put to death, um, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, we're also going to talk about some other tragedies that happen in uh, Chris's life uh, with some of his family and um, what he's doing now to 
just to make a, a really positive impact uh, because of some of that. So just a, a powerful second half where there's already a really powerful first half. I know you're going to, uh, to gain a lot from that. Hopefully you'll come back and listen to that second half. Uh, I thought a lot about whether I wanted to make this two parts or one really long one. I really wanted to kind of make shorter digestible parts. It really is important to me when possible to make things, um, you know, an hour. If, if you'd rather, you know, just have one big long one, um, you know, let me know. Maybe that's something that I'll, I'll consider in the future if I do have a long, uh, long interview. I've had one over an hour in the past. Um, there's another kind of true crime area. So those are the ones that take a little bit longer. Um, but uh, it was just a, a, an amazing conversation. Uh, it's going to be another amazing part of the conversation next week. So do turn it, tune in for that. Um, I'll give tri- uh, see. I'm about to say Trish again. I'll give Chris's information in the show notes. I'll kind of wrap it up with some better information um, next week as well. Uh, of course, go check us out. Not in a half podcast on Instagram. Um, jacksonhuff.com not enough with jacksonhuff on facebook we're everywhere go give us a follow um give us five stars on apple on spotify write us a review on apple always appreciate that um but yeah i'm sure you're wondering what in the world this answer is to that question i'm sure you're wondering the rest of this story and and what uh mr tritico is up to these days so i know i'll see you next week i look forward to uh you hearing that second half because it's a it's a powerful one. That's that's what I'll say for sure. But uh, until then, I'll see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.